Uh, this morning, we wrap up our series on the minor prophet Habakkuk. This short book is such a sweet gift from the Lord. The book of Habakkuk teaches us how to trust God through difficult times. And here's what I know about all of us. We are all going to go through difficult times. And some of you are going, yeah, I already know that. We've, I've gone through many of those. If you haven't gone through them, you will. Just be patient. And if you don't have good theology, if you don't have a solid ground to stand on, then you're more likely to walk away from your faith when you face difficult times. You, you see that happen a lot. The first two chapters have basically been Habakkuk looking out at his situation uh, and complaining to God about what he sees happening. Habakkuk complains to God because the Chaldeans, they were marching in, conquering Judah. And God's first reply was, if you remember, it was a bit of a shocker. Yahweh says, Habakkuk, look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Habakkuk hears this news and he offers yet another complaint to God. He says, Lord, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He's basically asking, God, if you're so good and loving, why would you let bad things happen to good people? Then after he makes the second complaint, Habakkuk, he stations himself on the tower and decides to wait and watch for God to show up. Then, as we saw last week, after some unknown time, God once again replies to Habakkuk's complaint. God tells Habakkuk that the righteous, they shall live by faith, and that the wicked, though they may seem like they're winning right now, they will face judgment at the appointed time, that nothing will go unseen. God goes on to share five woes, these divine punishments that God's enemies will face. And in chapter 3, this final chapter, we hear Habakkuk pray one of the most rich and beautiful prayers in the entire Bible. It's beautiful. I hate that I've heard many of you say, you know, I've never heard, I've been going to church my whole life, but I've never heard a sermon from Habakkuk. Um, I, need to be, I need to make sure I'm preaching these smaller books that are often ignored because they're just full of some beautiful um, theology. So let's turn to Habakkuk. Let's read chapter 3 in its entirety. And let's allow God's word to soften our hearts. And hear from the Holy One this morning. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, Selah. 
His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his hills. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hand on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fell, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with string instruments. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we too have heard uh, this report of you. And God, we've seen your work, your mighty hand. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to tremble, to fear, to be in awe of you. God, give us ears to hear this morning, eyes to see your hand at work. Lord, help us to trust you during difficult times as we will be a light, shining bright for others to see that there's something different about us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So in chapter three, we see something amazing happen. We see Habakkuk moved from complaint to contentment, and that would be my title today, from complaint to contentment. He begins in chapter 3 by, by praying, and I find the order of these chapters pretty interesting. I think how you and I often approach God is modeled in these three chapters. Notice that Habakkuk doesn't start out this book with this prayer to God, but rather with a complaint. 
I don't know about you, but I find that I can begin complaining to a holy and sovereign God before I come to him in prayer and seeking counsel. Habakkuk has moved from complaint to contentment in chapter 3. But how did he get there? Notice that nothing has changed since chapter 1. God has not yet poured out these five woes that we read about last week upon the Babylonians. They're still marching in. They haven't given up or changed their strategy, began to move troops out of Judah. It's so important that we don't miss this. Habakkuk's situation, his circumstance, are the exact same as when we started this book when he was complaining. The only, change, the only thing that has changed is his perspective. That's it. I pray that we get this this morning. That, that, that God can allow us to see the strength and power that, that we can have unshakable joy when we change our perspective. You want to be able to face difficult times and remain steadfast and change your perspective, change your theology. Habakkuk's situation might even be worse in chapter 3 than it was in chapter 1. Things have advanced, progressed. His situation seems worse, but now he just sees better, and that's all the difference. So he begins praying, and this prayer, if you notice, it's a corporate prayer. It's meant to be read and shared among God's people. It was not a silent prayer he kept to himself. It was recorded. So just the sheer means by it being recorded, we, we know that it's meant to be shared and read. It's for the church. Um, it was recorded for us that we could be encouraged to find unshakable joy during the most difficult times in our lives. So let's walk through this prayer. Let's just slow down. I pray that God grants us the grace to have the same transformation that we see from Habakkuk 1 to Habakkuk 3. Verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Some of you are expecting, maybe that's a good name that you could put on the list, Shigianoth. Good, strong name. So verse 1 begins by identifying Habakkuk as the one who's offering this prayer. And it's offered according to Shigianoth. Now, who in the world is Shigianoth? No one really knows. Um, He sounds like he could be the first Jewish rapper. Stage name could be Big Shig. But actually, Shigianoth is probably not even a person. This name is only found twice in the entire Bible. Here, and it's just according to Shigenoth, that's all. There's not much context. And then in Psalm 7, you see a form of this word being used. And that's it. That's it. All of the Old Testament. But from the context, Shigenoth is probably some type of instrument, not a person, or maybe a song or melody or style of music. So this prayer was most likely intended to be put to like music, like to a song. It's to be sung. 
We see this, you know, even in the very last verse, to the choir master with string instruments. So Zach's been working really hard this week. He's, he's actually written a song that he's going to sing here in a minute. I'm just kidding. He hasn't. But he has been working hard this week. I didn't mean that, Zach. But he's not, he's not put together a song of Habakkuk 3. That would be fun, though. We also see the word Selah mentioned three times. Um, we really don't know what this word means either, except context. We, we, we're not quite sure, but it seems like it's intended to have like some kind of pause and like poetry or, again, in a song. Then in verse 2, we see Habakkuk addressing the Lord. He begins by reflecting on what he has heard and seen from the Lord. Oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. Oh, Lord, do I fear. So he begins here in chapter 3 to lean on the Lord's faithfulness. He's seeing what God has done throughout Israel's history rather than what he hears and sees in this very moment. Remembering and reflecting on the Lord's faithfulness will help you shift your perspective. See, we often think when bad things come our way that God's bailed on us. He's forgotten about us. One of the best things that you can do during difficult times is to reflect on how he has been faithful in your life. Think about other times of trials and how he's shown up. Remember, he doesn't always show up early. He never shows up late, but he always shows up on time. This is why, like, for those of you who journal, man, that's a sweet time for you when you go through a trial, some kind of difficult situation. You go back and look at that journal, and you're encouraged. My wife, she's really good at journaling. She's got one of these journals where um, it's the same day, but it goes back many years. So, you know, if today is March 20th, she can look at March 20th and see, like, the last five March 20ths and what happened over those times. Um, and, and it's so encouraging for her. You know, she'll, she'll, she'll see themes in her life, like, oh, it was three years ago that I was struggling with this thing um, during around the same time. Maybe it was, you know, um, a death or a holiday or something. So it helps her. So we need to remember what God has done. This is one of the reasons why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. We take those elements and those elements remind us of what he has done for us, that he is faithful to his bride. It forces us to take our eyes off of our problems and put them on the cross. See, sometimes we get so fixated on our problems that we can begin to think that God is against us. But when we fix our eyes on Christ, remember what he's done for us, our eyes are on the cross, the resurrection, then we are reminded of how he truly does love us. See, when we're just focused on the problem, sometimes we think he's against us. But then when we focus on the cross, we're reminded, man, God, you love me. You love me so much that you would send Jesus to die for me. See, hearing God's word Seeing his report, it should lead us to tremble in awe of him. I love Isaiah 66. The second part of verse 2 says this. But this is the one to whom I will look. 
He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Who is God looking at? He's looking at someone who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at his word. When we first met Habakkuk, he was not humble and contrite. He had so much pride built up in his heart. He was complaining about his situation. He felt that since he was a servant of God, it's going to be very distracting, isn't it? Lord, what should I do? Go to, go to the handheld. All right, Lord. Here we go. So when we, we first encounter Habakkuk, he's, he's complaining to God about his situation. He, he felt that since he was a servant of God, that, that God should show him some type of special treatment. You ever been there? Like, God, look, look at all the things I'm doing for you. Why, why would you allow these things happen to me? He, he thought he knew better than God. But now here in chapter 3, we see a broken man. We see a man who's humble and contrite. A man who's trembling at God's word. Then at the end of verse 2, he says something very fascinating. He says, in wrath, Remember mercy. See, wrath go hand in hand with justice. Justice means getting what you deserve. Where mercy means not getting what you deserve. Without mercy, God's wrath would utterly destroy God's people. Without mercy, there would be no opportunity for sinners to receive grace. Mercy tempers Justice. Then in verses 3 through 15, Habakkuk's reflecting on what God has done, how God has been faithful in Israel's history. This is important for us. We need to reflect on God's faithfulness. Habakkuk, he turns to the most pinnacle act of redemption in the entire Old Testament, the Exodus story. In verse 3, he prays, God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. This is a description of God leading the Israelites out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land. The reference here to, to Teman, meaning south, would refer to Egypt. Mount Paran is another way of saying Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where Moses received the Ten Commandments. So this is a reflection of, God, I remember. I remember when we were slaves in Egypt. We were oppressed. And our people thought, God, we're your chosen people. Why could you do this to us? And I remember you showed up and you delivered us from Israel. He goes on in verse 4, his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. This is a reference how God's power was on display, uh, display through the plagues, how God was in control of every single one of them. 
Habakkuk continues in verse 6. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. The moon and the sun, they stood still. This is reference, you remember, back to Joshua. They were a battle, and God remained, you know, he, he calls it to be day longer. Verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Habakkuk is remembering all, all of those who opposed Yahweh along the way and how Yahweh always showed up and all of God's enemies always experienced God's wrath. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. So we see God going out Saving his people, the reference here to the anointed, probably Moses, could be Joshua, maybe even King David. We don't really know for sure. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So in the Exodus, we see a God who is sovereign over Israel's enemies. And nothing's changed in Habakkuk's days. And nothing's changed in ours. God is sovereign over our enemies. Here he's described as a divine warrior who defeats his enemies and brings salvation to his people. It's like Habakkuk is finally remembering that Moses and Joshua weren't really the heroes of the story. That there was someone else at work in their story. Someone behind the scenes. The same one at work in those situations. The same one at work in ours. We have a God who is sovereign, good, and wise. Habakkuk remembers that Yahweh was their true warrior king. Then in verses 16 through 19, we see Habakkuk still trembling. But at least he's now trusting. That's a big difference. He's trembling in chapter 1. He's complaining. He doesn't trust God. Now he's trembling, but he's trusting. These last four verses are some of the most beautiful and powerful verses in the entire Bible. Um, let's look at these together. As I read these, I want you to pay close attention to how he describes the situation, how he describes his attitude, emotions. Listen to this, verse 16. I hear my body trembles. 
My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. This seems like he's describing his emotions as he's watching the Chaldeans just invade his people. It's clearly not a good situation, right? He is fearful. His body and legs, we see, they, they tremble. Have you ever been so nervous to where you physically begin to shake? That's what's happening. This is not a good situation. This is a back. Now listen to how he's handling this terrible situation. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Your timing, Lord, not mine. I will be patient. I might not fully understand the situation, but I don't really have to. You are God. I am not. That, that's, that's a shift in his perspective. He's realizing that he's not God, that God is God, and God can do what God wants, whatever pleases him. He continues, verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. It's not a good situation, is it? I know I have complained over the last several months going to Walmart and just seeing shelves empty. You know what I mean? It's kind of strange. Just go and there's just, there's just no chicken anywhere. And it's just random stuff. Couldn't find peanut M&M's. You know, it's, that's awful. But this is not that. You know, we complain, but I'm guessing you are still finding food. This is nothing. No fruit, no produce. Fields yield no food, flocks cut off, no herd in the stalls. Our situation is nothing compared to Habakkuk's. How does he respond? Some of you go and you start to, your blood pressure rises, like, ah, I better stock up. That kind of that hoarder mentality comes out in you, right? We're back to like, Stockpiling toilet paper again. Look how Habakkuk responds. He, he, he gives us his situation, his circumstance in verse 17. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Is that you in Walmart? Though there's no peanut M&Ms and yet I praise Christ in that moment. I rejoice in the Lord. I mean, who does that? There's no food, like none, zero food. And Habakkuk's response to this awful situation is, yet I will rejoice 
in the Lord. And I pray we get this. God, I pray you'd be gracious that you would show us how to live like Habakkuk. He continues, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. I mean, how beautiful is this? Don't you want this in your life? I picture this confident man, Habakkuk, just fully trusting in a faithful God. No matter what comes his way, he knows that he has a God who's in control. That the same God that has given him all the riches is the same God who's in the famine. You know what this shows me, what this teaches us? Is that your situation, your circumstances, do not dictate your emotions. I pray we get this. Your situation, your circumstances, the things that are around you, do not dictate your emotions. I think far too many Christians live as if God doesn't exist. Yes, the Christians... People who claim to know Christ live as though God does not exist. You're what's called functional atheist. What I mean is you say God exists with your mouth, but when life gets a little bit challenging, or maybe really challenging, you live as though he's impotent, that he's absent, that he's not in control. When things get difficult, when trials come, you lose your mind because you are functional atheist. You act like there is no God. This is why so many people today are anxious, worried, fearful. It's because you rely or you've been relying on your own sovereignty like Habakkuk in chapter 1 and not on his. These verses are so important for us because they show us something really important about how mankind operates. This passage answers the question, why do we do what we do? This is something you will never learn from a psychology class at Marshall. The Bible is a thousand times better at telling us who we are and why we do the things we do. What these verses show us is that your situation, your circumstances, your environment do not dictate or control your emotions Your, but, your buttons aren't being pushed. So those things don't control you, but rather your situation, your circumstances, your environment simply are revealing your heart. Things that you treasure and value. Your emotions show you what you worship. Habakkuk in chapter 1, he's maybe angry, he's complaining. That shows us that something about his situation, maybe he had this belief that God should take care of his people and what he meant by take care of his people is that we should have no problems in our life. 
Your emotions show you what you worship. If you're going to have unshakable joy, then you need to understand this basic truth. When you find these sinful emotions in your life, that should be an opportunity for you to stop and say, Lord, what do I worship? What am I making an idol right now? This is why some people get upset about something, and others will look at that same thing, and they're not upset. I mean, are there any Kentucky Wildcat fans in this room? Oh, I see one hand that will admit. That's it, just one. One Kentucky Wildcat fan. If you are a Kentucky Wildcat fan, then Thursday night you probably found yourself getting very angry. Like, what in the world's going on? I mean, Thursday night they were Kentucky Wildcats were facing that great powerhouse, that great nemesis, the Peacocks, that 15, that dreaded 15-2 seed matchup. And if you found yourself getting upset over that game, it's because you found some worth or value in being a Kentucky fan. Or maybe you had Kentucky going really far in your bracket, and they, you know, you're going to boast about how wise you are, how you know sports better than the others in your bracket challenge. And so I see this all the time on the baseball field. That's why some parents get so upset watching their, their son or daughter miss a ground ball or strike out. They get so angry. Then you see other parents, they're not even emotionally evolved at all. They don't care. It's because some parents find their value and worth in how their kids perform. They like it when people come up to them after the game and go, Wow, your son, your daughter, they're so good. Like, oh, thank you. We've been working really hard at home. So while some kids cry when they strike out or get out, they, they've made something about those results into an idol. Maybe they're just afraid to get in the car because you've made it an idol, and they really, they've made your approval an idol. So how do you find contentment during difficult times? I think passages like this one, like Jeremiah 17, give us some incredible insight. I read the first half of Jeremiah 17 when we went through chapter 1. Jeremiah 17 begins with a similar terrible setting as Habakkuk. The only difference in Jeremiah is God is up front in Jeremiah 17, to why the enemy is coming in. He, he says he's giving the land that they possess over to their enemy because of their sin. I mean, he's just up front, he tells them in Jeremiah 17. Then he contrasts two ways to live and likens these two ways to two trees. Jeremiah 17, verse 5, says this. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. So the first man, he, he puts trust in himself, in his own heart. And his heart is turned away from the Lord. So this is a man who, he thinks he's got it all figured out. 
my way is the best way. Any of you married to this person? My wife's out there raising her hand. You know, I, I, I can find in my heart that I like control. I, I can play God at times. The man who trusts in himself is cursed. God compares him to a tree in verse 6. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt man. This first man has a terrible situation. He is a shrub in the desert. He sees no good. He dwells in parched places in an uninhabited salt land. Who would want to live in this environment? I mean, not me. This is terrible. Now let's look at the second man. Verse 7, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. So the second man does not place trust in himself, but rather he puts his trust in the Lord. The second man is also compared to a tree. I want you to listen to his situation. I want you to determine if his environment is a good environment or bad. You ready? Verse 8, he is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. All right, is this a good environment to be in or bad? I kind of see both. The bad would be, all right, I see heat in verse 8. There's also a year of drought. That sounds pretty bad if you're a tree, right? But then look at the good. He's planted by water, has roots in the stream. So even though he's in a difficult situation, notice he does not fear when the heat comes. Uh, his leaves remain green. He's not anxious in the year of drought. And he does not cease to bear fruit. I mean, if there's any reason, I mean, if you picture yourself as a tree, and you were thinking of like, Top five reasons to be anxious as a tree. I would think in the top five reasons, maybe below chainsaw, would be year of drought. That's, that's awful. I would think that would be a reason for you to be anxious. But yet, this tree is not anxious even in the year of drought. And even in the year of drought, he continues to produce fruit, good fruit. These two trees, representing these two men or two ways of living, are exactly what we've seen in the Habakkuk of chapter 1 and the Habakkuk of chapter 3. Most people, even Christians, think more like the Habakkuk of chapter 1. Lord, please change my circumstances, then I will be happy. That's what we pray, don't we? Lord, I love you. Look at all these things I'm doing for you. Please change my, my environment, my circumstances. 
But changing your circumstances will not make you happy. See, this is the single guy or the single girl thinking that if I could just find a spouse, Lord, send me someone, then I would be happy. I would say to you, just look at all the married folk you know in the world. Do they all seem happy? See, some of them, they wish they were like you. You know, Lord, please make me single again. See, changing your circumstances, your situation, will not bring you joy or peace or patience. That kind of thinking shows that you're being deceived. Which brings us to verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, our hearts are wicked. They're desperately sick. You cannot trust yourself. I don't care how many songs tell you to listen to your heart. It will deceive you, especially during difficult times. We see that from Habakkuk. He's not thinking right in chapter 1. Verse 10 gives us the answer to the question, who can understand the heart? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. See, the Lord knows what's best for you. The situation you're in right now, somewhere in your theology, you have to understand that God is in control of the situation, the trial that you're going through. He's not forgotten about you. The Lord knows what's best. Changing your situation might not be what's best for you. Instead, your situation, it's revealing your heart. It's revealing what you truly worship. I want you right now just to think about what makes you anxious. In the room this size, like, what makes this person anxious isn't what makes you anxious at all. Something different for all of us. When you think about what makes you anxious, what, what's, why are you so worried or fearful right now? And I want you to think about how or in what ways are you not trusting God in that situation? What ways are you trying to control God? He might be revealing something in your heart that you've made an idol. You care way too much about. Can you pray Habakkuk's prayer? Listen to it again. Though the fig tree should blossom, should should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Can you pray that prayer? Don't be so quick to have God change your circumstances. He may be doing a work in your life that you wouldn't understand if told. 
We see this in Habakkuk's life. We see this even in the clear example in Christ and the cross. Think about Jesus and the cross for a moment. Think about Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. If you write in your Bible, underline that. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How can Jesus endure the cross? Does that sound like a good environment? I mean, not just the physical pain, but think about the spiritual pain that's happening right now. He's taking on the sin of the world. Those five woes that we talk about, it's a picture here. Being put upon him. He's enduring the cross, despising the shame, and he considers it joy. See, he trusted his perfect father's plan. If you remember, if you go back to the night he was arrested, he's, he's in the garden praying. And that moment he's praying, he's saying, Father, let this cup, this, this situation be changed, Lord. Change my situation. Let this cup pass. But Father, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Christ knows just changing the circumstance doesn't, it's not going to bring joy. He has joy even in the trial. It's all about trust. Proverbs 3, 5, we'll close with this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Habakkuk chapter 1. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. Be not wise in your own eyes. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. Habakkuk chapter 3. What changed? He put his trust in a good, sovereign, and wise God. Where will you put your trust? Trust in him. Trust in his promises. Learn to find joy in the journey, no matter what bumps or curves may come your way. As the band makes their way back up to, to lead us, I'm going to be in the back. If you just need prayer for anything, I'll be in the back. I'd love to just to pray with you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the journey that we're all on. Some of us, we've seen um, harder days than others. But Lord, we've all faced things that seem like um, our world was falling apart, that um, we just couldn't handle these things. Lord, we've seen things um, just even probably this past week that stirred our emotions to where we were angry or anxious, bitter, afraid, and fearful. Lord, I pray that 
that you'd give us the, the grace to, to trust you more this week. That we would stand on the promises. That we reflect on your faithfulness. That you have never once failed us. That you have been so faithful. So Lord, as we've seen your faithfulness, Lord, may we be faithful to you. Help us to stand firm. Help us to praise your name even in the difficult times. Lord, may we stand with men like Habakkuk, like Christ. May we find joy even in the most difficult days. Lord, may we trust you no matter what. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.